in the world of AI news. When Stephanie and I went to the Vatican, I counted approximately 66 cameras in the lower level entrance of Vatican City. And we were allowed to enter, you, you have to have passports, it's considered another country. And we were allowed to enter based on us looking at a machine where the artificial intelligence looked at our eyes and knew it was us without showing our passports. So I'm telling you, that's some pretty sophisticated artificial intelligence because it doesn't always work in American airports, but it works at the Vatican. They know who you are and you're being watched. But I wanted to show you something that was interesting to me because they still employ physical guards. They have military on the outside and the physical guards on the inside. If he clicks it, we can zoom in and you can see the humans here. So if you click it once, it'll... Or did you already click it once? Okay, so you probably can't tell. They're, they're in like uh, court gestures outfits, like stripes and bright colors. Yeah, it's crazy. So even though artificial intelligence is really something special, you still require humans to be involved. All right, Beyond Artificial Intelligence is the series we're going through, and we're still in Proverbs. Timeless wisdom from Proverbs. However, we will dip into James a little bit today, the New Testament book of wisdom. Maybe to whet your appetite a little bit, maybe you'll want to look ahead and see what we're going to be doing when we get into the book of James. But we are in Proverbs chapter 9. Uncomfortable distinctions between wisdom and absurdity. On the next slide, you'll see the next couple of them. They'll be familiar uh, an important reminder, you may recall. Going, Wisdom is personified as a woman. Go ahead and click the next thing. After warning us against the seductress, we are told, we're reminded, in chapter 8, that wisdom is personified as a woman. So there's this tug of war that's happening. There's the seductress, and there is wisdom. And the seductress represents absurdity. We'll see that today. But there is still a magnetism to both. We're, we're going to be tempted. We're going to be seduced to do the wrong thing. But wisdom still cries out. All right. Next slide also might be familiar to you. There's a warning. The following is in your face. Now, fortunately, we're not talking a whole lot about adultery, because that keeps coming up in Proverbs, and it's uncomfortable. But today, it also does talk about things that make some of us uncomfortable. 2 Timothy chapter, 16 verses, um, chapter 3, verses 16 to 17 says, Every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way through the word, we are put together and shaped up for the task God has for us. That's the message paraphrase. We'll be going through the English Standard Version as we go through Proverbs 9 today. 
But I want to give you a quote from Adam Clark to preface this. This same wisdom speaks here who spoke in the preceding chapter. There she represented herself as manifest in all the works of God and in the natural world, all being constructed according to counsels proceeding from an infinite understanding. Here she represents herself as the great potentate who was to rule all that she had constructed and having an immense family to provide for, had made an abundant provision and calls all to partake of it. The quote continues on the next slide. This is the continuation of the parable begun in the preceding chapter, where wisdom is represented as a venerable lady whose real beauties and solid promises are opposed to the false allurements of pleasure, who is represented in the seventh chapter under the idea of a debauched and impudent woman. So it's a continuing thought process. In the final slide of this quote, this one, to draw young men into her snares, describes the perfumes, the bed, the festival which she had prepared. Wisdom acts in the same way, but instead of the debauchery, the false pleasures, and the criminal connections which pleasure had promised, offers her guests a strong, well-built, magnificent palace, chaste and Solid pleasures, salutary instructions, and a life crowned with blessedness. That's a quote from Adam Clark. I give you that. He was a, a wise theologian who was essentially a leader of the Methodist Church at one particular point in time. He was recommended by John Wesley to climb in the ranks. You'll see some of this come out as he spoke in that quote. But I want to remind you, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20, we were told, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. So wisdom is calling out to us. Although we are seduced to do the absurd, wisdom is calling out all over the place. You might recall how we've been through many verses that talked about that. In chapter 8, Verses 1 to 3, I'll remind you. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud. So everywhere, wisdom is calling out to us. And we begin chapter 9, verse 1, very similarly. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places of the town. So not only does wisdom call out, wisdom sends delegates to call out. And once again, it describes wisdom as young women. Women is, is wisdom. A woman is wisdom. And young women are used to entice us to pay attention 
to the sageness of God. And from all over. She's prepared a place, wisdom has, and, and she has prepared the food. She's gone through the rigors of taking care of everything so that we would have a place at her table. And one of the things that are, one of the alluring things about wisdom is that we, we, want, to, we want other people to think we're wise. We don't want people to think we're a fool. We don't want people to look at us and think that we're absurd with everything we think and do. No, we want people to respect us, admire us. But that doesn't just happen. You have to earn it. And I'm always blown away that God would allow me to have a morsel of wisdom at any given time because of all the foolishness that I've taken part in in my history. But he allows me. And I'm grateful that I get to mentor other people. And other people look at me because I've been doing pastoring for a while. And I just, one of my birthday things I got yesterday was from Peyton saying, thank you for giving me wisdom. Well, hopefully she'll remember the other parts where I say to her, always check everything I say against the Bible. Because God's given us this as his ultimate resource of wisdom now. And anything I say, although it may sound wise, if it doesn't align with Scripture, then it's no good. If it has to align with Scripture. But one of those things that's interesting to me when I look at this, what is this seven pillars? Because it seems a little bit obscure, does it not? You read this, and like, oh, what's that? Seven pillars. I mean, pillars would be the strong things in the home that... Everything ties to, one of the things I marveled at when I visited uh, Southeast, that uh, church in Louisville that you hear me talk about quite a bit, Stephanie talks about it as well, that church building that they built there in Louisville, Kentucky, there's a, when you drive by, you can see a cross on the top of it. I recently talked to somebody who grew up in Louisville. I said, hey, did you ever attend that church? Oh, no. Thought about it, never did. Did you ever see it? Oh, yeah, you see it from the highway. Everybody knows about that church that lives in the area. Well, one of the things I marveled about it was the cross that you see on the tip of it. Now, when you drive by on the highway and you see this mega church, such a huge facility, and it's got this little cross that looks so tiny, but I think it's 20 or 30 feet tall. But it looks tiny from, you know, you're driving by, you barely see it, a little sticking up. But that cross is the tip of an I-beam that was custom-made for that structure. And that tip of the I-beam that's way up there at the top goes all the way down into that Colosseum of a church building. It goes through the middle of that Colosseum part, the, the worship room. It goes all the way down to the basement. And at the basement, I don't know how wide it is, but I imagine it's probably 20 or 30 feet wide across because it's tapering at the tip of the cross. And that giant I-beam is bolted to a footing that's in the basement and everything in that whole structure, not just the worship room that's so huge, remember it seats 10,000 people, everything else, the, all the other structure that goes for so long, you have to step into a neighborhood to get a picture of the whole building. Everything is tied to that cross, structurally. And I thought, that is pretty cool, if you think about it. It's quite symbolic. The pillars would be symbolic of strength in the home of wisdom, because you do know that this is all symbolic talk, right? It's a parable. Wisdom built her house. 
there is no physical person named Wisdom that built a physical house that has physical pillars. This is symbolic talk. So what are, what are the seven pillars? What does this mean? It seems abstract. So I leaned on someone by the name of Donald G. Hunt. You might remember that name. I gave it to you early on. I said I would be leaning on his scholarship and his commentary on Proverbs. I want to give you a quote from him about this particular verse. The seven pillars of wisdom may be the seven things mentioned in James 3.17 concerning heavenly wisdom, pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without variance and without hypocrisy. Or, Seven may be used here, as it so often is in the book of Revelation, as an ideal number. Well, that's fascinating. Either or. I love those different concepts that are spelled out in the New Testament book of Wisdom, James 3, that he references, verse 17. But I want to look at that word ideal that he uses here. Here's what happens when sages... People of wisdom. Now, I know in our modern world, we think of people who are espousing words that are wisdom. We think of celebrities. Well, maybe not all of us in this room think of that way, but certainly young people want to listen to the Kobe Bryants or to, you pick whatever movie star you want to name. You want to pick whatever other athletes you want to name or you want to pick a, a singer these celebrities, they're, they're propped up, and whatever they say, young people that look up to them think that, oh, that's wisdom, or they think it's right. But <clears throat> when you listen to a sage that's a genuine sage, a person who actually has wisdom, and it could be that a, an athlete might have wisdom, or a celebrity of a, another brand, another profession might have wisdom. But when you, typically when you think of sages, you think of people who, that's what they're known for, is wisdom, not for something else, and then they just speak. When you think of a sage, I don't know if you realize it, but oftentimes sages are calculating their words so that they'll have the best outcomes when it falls on the listener's ears. So you might notice that when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, remember who, the, who they were, religious leaders, Sadducees were distinct from the Pharisees because the Sadducees, remember their name, they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in life after this life on earth. They thought you just died and that was it. The Pharisees believed there was something after this life here on earth. So, when Jesus would have these Pharisees and Sadducees gang up on him, he would bring up the resurrection. And automatically, then the Sadducees are like, that's absurd. You, resurrection, there's no resurrection. Nothing happens after you die. And the Pharisees are like, whoa, well, wait a minute. Uh, yeah. So then they would start arguing, and then they're off of Jesus. So he's, he was very wise. A sage will do things like that. They'll, they'll think about their audience and they'll calculate the consequences of their words before they say them. Sometimes Jesus would be silent because he knew that that was the right thing to do. 
And sometimes he would speak. And sages do this. Sometimes you'll see this play out when you'll watch somebody, some adult, who's misbehaving as an adult that never grew up. You might be in a public setting, right in the middle of a store, or maybe right at work, and this adult is acting like a child. But nobody says anything, and it's not because everyone approves, but it's because they know that person is not going to respond well if they do say something. Sages are like that. They calculate the consequences of the words before they speak them. Considering the audience, considering other people who might hear what's going on, a sage might think about, rather than confronting someone in front of their peers, pulling them aside and talking to them, because it might be more effective. Maybe you've seen this. Sages do this. And so I can't help but think Donald Hunt, when he said, ideal, would go where the mind of some of the sages in my life, their minds would go when they would use that word ideal. And maybe he would even go to 1 Corinthians 13. I'll warn you now, this is a rabbit trail with a purpose. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a Greek word is brought up on a regular basis when discussing 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It follows the part that we call 1 Corinthians the love chapter because it talks about, you know, love is patient, love is kind. There's a whole list, it's a wonderful list. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, there's a Greek word that comes right after that. And we'll look at that in a minute. And that Greek word is teleos. That's, if you look it up, if you get online and Google, because Google knows everything, uh, you'll find teleos is the word that, about which I'm speaking. However, that's the root word. It's not the word you find in 1 Corinthians 13. The word you find there is teleon. Now, why in the world did I even give you that? And here's how you say it. You can see those three are there. Teleos, teleon, and the, the way you say it in English is just below that on the slide behind me. Why am I doing that? Why, why would I even tell you that? Because what happens is there are scholars that know Greek but don't have a dedication to Scripture. They have a dedication to their denomination, their, the way they grew up believing. So they want to defend what they believe rather than expose what Scripture says. And so with someone like me who says teleos or teleon, I'll be called on it by somebody like that. Oh, that's not the word. Teleon does, teleos does not appear in 1 Corinthians 13. And they, some, they could show you in the Greek Bible, see, it's teleon and not teleos. He got it wrong. Just so you're aware, the reason why it's teleon is because it's the neutral, neutral gender in that particular sentence. And it nullifies the theological presumption that it's talking about Jesus because it can't be. It's in the neutral gender. It's not talking about a person. But what is this word, teleon? Okay, the, you'll see... It is translated in these different ways, three different ways in different Bibles. Perfect is the way you'll see it translated in most translations. Mature is another way you'll see it translated. And complete, that's the way the word tends to be translated. I like to refer to Goldilocks and the three bears and say it means just right. Because when you read the same word, when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, most of us are like, oh, I can't do that. But if you understand be just right as your heavenly father is just right, okay, I can do that. I can't be perfect, but 
I can try that one. But if you understand the other concept of mature and complete, you might get it when you actually read it. And we will go there in just a minute. First, I would like to look at the English Standard translation of James 3.16 and 17. And yes, I did back up and add verse 16 on purpose. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Those are the words that our scholar that I quoted from suggested that quite possibly that these seven pillars are these things. But he also went on to say that maybe it was, it's more of the ideal number. In other words, wisdom has built her house on the ideal number of pillars that is needed. The perfect, the complete, the mature, the just right amount of pillars. Now we'd like to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 and following, as we continue on that rabbit trail before we circle back to Proverbs chapter 9. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now following on the heels of love is patient, love is kind, the list in the love chapter, it wraps up with the first part of chapter 13, verse 8, love never ends. And then Paul goes on to address something that he continues to address all the way into chapter 15, and that is the Corinthian church's insatiable desire to be overly sensational. Maybe you've been to churches that do this sort of thing, where you have to come into the church and you have to have a euphoric emotional high in order for you to have church. You have to, you have to have, and some churches say you even have to have a sensational experience up in front of everybody. Some will go as far as to say you have to fall on the floor, wallow around, maybe run around the building. Different things like this. You've seen this. I've, I've been in these churches. I grew up attending a church like that. <clears throat> and what happens is if you don't go through that experience, then you didn't have church. If you just actually worship God, you pray and you sing songs of adoration to God, you have communion even. You maybe even um, give some back to Him that you earned by His grace in an offering. And you had a, a beautiful God-glorified worship service, but if you didn't get an emotional high out of it, well then, you didn't really worship. Maybe you've been a part of a service like that. So, so people think that they have to experience 
this emotional euphoria in order for worship to be happening. And maybe that's not your thing. Maybe you're, you would rather just have a, your emotional euphoria happen when you sing a song. i got to sing the songs that I like, that make me feel good, make me remember my childhood or bounce on my toes. You know, that's, i got to feel that or I didn't have church. And it becomes all about you instead of God. And this is where churches have divided over and over again throughout history because somebody didn't feel what somebody else was feeling. And so we're going to fight over it. I don't know if you remember, but all interpersonal relationship problems are caused by selfishness, right? You, you figured this out by now in life, right? If, if there's people that aren't getting along, whether it's just two people that aren't getting along or groups of people, it's because somebody's being selfish, and it might be both parties. And in churches that split, it's typically over, well, it's always over selfishness, but typically it's over the way somebody's strong emotions, they're attached to something, and they're not going to give up on that thing. And in modern times, it has been connected to how you're going to do worship. Because I want to feel the way I want to feel. And if everybody could just focus on how about how God feels, because aren't we worshiping Him, not me? In my, my personal feelings about how I want to you know, have this thing inside of me during church, isn't it more about worshiping God than me getting what I want? That's what it's supposed to be, but churches split because of the dumbest things. You've heard about churches splitting over colors of carpet. I experienced this in the biggest way my first time when we were in Lacey, and we were there for 18 years, but early on, it was determined when the name of the church changed, we needed to have a new sign, and then the old sign was falling apart. And the elders spent time praying about, okay, what are we going to do here? We need to honor God. So how are we going to do this? And so we, after several weeks of prayer, we gathered together and said, we think it would be good to, as we drive around, we do our thing, we pay attention to other church signs and see what meets the goals that we believe God has set for us, which is a warm and inviting sign. You know, that's, that was the main emphasis. So... We got together after a few months and came up with a conclusion of what the warm and inviting sign should look like. And a friend of one of the elders, a couple, they asked, well, how's that going, looking at the sign? They, well, you know, we've come up with a sketch, a little pencil thing. One of, none of us were great artists, but one of the elders to try, tried to sketch out something. We were going to try to have a contractor develop the sign that we wanted. It was ground-lit made of uh, stone and wood. It had a warmer... We, we looked at everything. We looked at all of the other churches and the ones that were backlit had a commercial feel. It wasn't the warm and friendly thing. So we wanted... And then whatever the shape of the sign, we wanted it to be either just a rectangular shape so it doesn't... We're not trying to send any special, unusual message, just the name of the church and the address and, you know, that sort of thing. But this couple was determined that that sketch looked so bad, because none of us were artists, that they, they asked to make a copy, they made a copy, and they went around the church, well, they first went to a person that they knew who was a sign company uh, owner, 
And uh, they got this sign uh, designed on a computer that was full color and uh, backlit and it had a weir really weird shape because they just made another sign for another business, had an unusual shape. And um, they basically started campaigning through the church, showing people, what do you think? Here's a, what the elders want to do. Here's what we think we should do. Full color. Doesn't this look nicer? And before we knew what was going on, more than half the church was angry at the elders because they wanted to do something that wasn't great. We had to have a meeting and pray, and we realized that it would probably divide the church if we didn't just simply accommodate the majority. No, we did not believe that God, God's hand was in how that all played out. We believe the devil was right in the middle of all of that. But the elders thought about the consequences of saying, wait a minute, we want to do it this way. This is what we prayed about. We went through all this. We knew that the spiritual maturity of the majority, um, that they wouldn't be able to digest that. So the church wound up with a backlit sign that was very cold, very businesslike, not what the elders wanted. But God blessed the church anyway. Because the elders were wise enough to know that, yes, divisive actions were taken and the devil's hand was in it. But if we can back up and realize the consequences of standing our ground could be far worse than realizing it's just a sign. It just needs our name on it. We can do this. It's fine. But we almost had a disaster on our hands, I can tell you. In talking about this idea that tongue speaking is going to be stilled and prophecies, they're going to stop that direct knowledge from God because you're going to eventually have all that you need compiled into a single source so you don't have Paul and John and Peter giving you different things in different locations. At some point in time, the Bible will be compiled and it will be complete and you don't need all this anymore. You will be mature enough to go with what God gives you for his plan here on earth. Most of the scholars that I've read that pick this apart with the intention to expose what God's trying to teach us, believe that's talking about Scripture. God was predicting that at some point in time, you're going to have all that you need. And so all this sensational stuff that the Corinthian church was caught up in, they were really getting out of hand. In fact, he goes on in chapters 12, actually chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15, talking about how you should be handling these matters. If there's going to be tongue speaking, you can't do it unless there's a translator. And that has to be a gift from God, not somebody who's been trained to translate because this tongue speaking thing is a, is a, is a language from God. And in the prophecies and all of these other things, there's specific directions that are given that I have found that the churches that overemphasize this, these sensational things don't follow those rules. Like in, if there's going to be tongue speaking, there should be one or two, and they go one at a time. When I've been a part, and I've done it lately, been a part of churches that do this, a bunch of them are going all at the same time. I, I remain open to if I see it biblically done, okay, then I'll deal with that. But 
I'm following scripture and scripture says the church will reach a point in time when it's mature enough that all they need is what I give them, the complete scripture. And some of you might be very bothered by that. Told you this would be uncomfortable. The rabbit trail that led us to this was a word that was in a quote about the ideal pillars. Let's go back to that passage so we stick with our the reason why we're going through this is to go through the book of wisdom. So let's go back there. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1. We'll read it again. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. I do believe in that second part of the quote that I gave you that this is talking about the seven pillars are the complete number, the ideal, everything needed. And if you want to lean on James chapter 3, verse 17, to get the pillars of wisdom and throw them in here as the ideal, that's great. That works together. It's fine. But God is trying to give us everything we need to be drawn to his sage advice in life. And wisdom has made her table. She's got everything ready. She's tried to make it set up so that you can have a life that is pleasing to the Lord. She's got everything that you need, the ideal number of pillars to strengthen what she's offering you. But it says, if you remember, she has, in verse 3, it says, she has sent out her young women to call out from the highest places in the town. So wisdom is calling in all these places, and now delegates are calling, and what are they saying? Here's a quote. Continuing in verse 4, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Now you see a note in the English Standard Version. It could be translated instead of leave your simple ways, it could be translated, leave the company of the simple. It's a constant thread throughout Proverbs, so it could be translated that way. Don't hang around with other simple people or you're going to be simple too. Life is not so simple, it's pretty complex. And wisdom's delegates are saying from all these areas, come in, leave your simple ways or leave the simple company you keep. Turn in here. Change your direction. Verse 7 continues. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. I guess if you wanted to put this in a modern vernacular, you could say, choose your battles carefully. Because you know what a scoffer is, right? A scoffer is one who laughs at your wisdom. Uh, a scoffer is one who just blows it off like, oh, that's stupid. When it's wisdom, that's a scoffer. So why would you try to correct somebody who's going to behave like that? You already know they behave like this. They're not going to accept it. So you've got to choose your battles carefully. Thus, the reason why you find Jesus and his apostles would sometimes be silent 
and sometimes speak. You've got to consider who the audience is. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've tried to correct someone. You were in the right. They were in the wrong. But they're a scoffer. You end up losing in that battle. Because they scoff. Verse 9 continues, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now the, the, the note here, you'll notice in the English Standard Version, the Hebrew word is not there for instruction, but it is presumed. And the reason why it's presumed and why it's here in the English Standard Version and in most modern translations is because it appeared early in the first English translations. So give something to a wise man and he'll still be wiser. Well, that would be instruction. But notice the reference here I give you to Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. It'll pop up on the screen behind me. Because that's the first time in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the first time we hear this phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You have to be afraid of what the Lord can do with you in order for you to even begin to have knowledge, much less wisdom. You have to fear the Lord. We live in a world now where consequences, accountability, responsibility, those are just not things for most people anymore. Maybe you see this. Maybe and people like to blame it on COVID. Well, COVID happened now and kids just don't behave. Well, no, it's before COVID. We, just, we live in a world where there's very little accountability. I've shared with you, as serving as a chaplain for three years in this state, it blows my mind that you take somebody and you incarcerate them and the first thing you do, one of the first things you do is you give them a tablet. So they can play games all the time. They get, to, they get to watch TV. They get to communicate with people just like that because it's on the tablet. They can do it right there in their cells. People in solitary confinement get these privileges. Accountability? You understand why some people want to keep going back into what's called solitary confinement because you don't have to deal with other people. So they do things to get in there so they don't have to deal with other people. There are people that don't want to leave the prison system. Why, why would they? Because out there they struggled with working and accountability and responsibility. Maybe you've dealt with adults in the workforce who are constantly no-call, no-shows. Maybe you've dealt with adults who don't want to work. Where's the responsibility? Where's the accountability? It's just almost a thing of the past. And when it comes down to children throwing fits and tantrums, it happens all the time. I'll remind you, I raised, Stephanie and I raised six kids. Never threw a tantrum, never threw a fit. None of them. And it's not like we had to give them a rule, you're never going to do this. No, they just knew they couldn't. So they never tried. Recently, I put myself in a situation where there is a kid that is referred to as a spitter. 
spits on everybody. Spits on the adults, spits on the other kids. So I thought, okay, how are we going to deal with this? So I interject myself into the situation. For approximately one hour, I was with this child, with other kids and other adults. And yes, at one particular time, I was told by another adult, he's about to start spitting. So I looked at the child and I go, you're not going to do that. And guess what happened? It didn't happen. It was the first time in months that this kid hadn't spit on anybody, hadn't thrown something, hadn't thrown a tantrum. Because some strange adult set an expectation, you're not going to do this. So he didn't. Maybe you've dealt with adults that they were never told no. And some of you, I can tell by your expressions, you've dealt with adults who grew up never being told no. No accountability, no responsibility, no consequences. Makes for a more difficult world, does it not? <clears throat> but if you give instruction to a wise man, he will get wiser. Because a wise man fears the Lord. There are consequences. You will have to be held accountable for your life on earth. If you understand this, you might check yourself sometimes and be wise. It continues with verse 11. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. And it's a, it's a wonderful benefit if you are wise, if you pay attention, you listen to the calls of wisdom. She is calling out to you. She sent her delegates, and all of those women are calling out to you. And you will have a long life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. It benefits you. If you have wisdom, it benefits you. It doesn't benefit you immediately, always, but it does benefit you. If you scoff, well... You will have to pay for that scoffing. You will bear it. Now, a transition happens here. Watch this. Verse 13. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Does this not sound familiar to wisdom? So the woman folly is loud. That's interesting. So, and, and if you don't know folly, folly, folly could be translated as foolishness, absurdities. So notice that wisdom calls out from all places. But... <laughs> The woman folly is loud. You might want to remember in your New Testaments how the godly woman is described as the woman who adorns herself with godliness does it with gentleness and quietness. That's in contrast to the woman folly, which is loud. And she is seductive. So is wisdom. I mean, wisdom, wisdom tries to get your attention, but folly is seductive in a way that gets your 
sensual desires riled up. As I understand it, and I try to stay up on things, pornography has gotten to be an epidemic. Why? Well, (laughs) it sure is readily available on all the screens that people have. You do know that if you get caught with pornography in a prison setting, you, you get penalized. It, it doesn't help with people's thinking. It, it actually messes with your head. You, you get off track with that sort of thing. When you chase after your sensual desires, you're not thinking, you're following emotions. And because of that, that foolishness distracts you from wisdom. So yes, wisdom is attractive, but your sensual desires could lead you away from her. Both wisdom and folly are attractive. But absurd things, foolishness, that, well, that's seductive. You'll be compelled to want to get involved with chasing after your sensual desires because inside of you things start happening. Hormones are released and you start to have these, that emotional euphoric feeling I was talking about earlier that people chase in churches. People chase after these things because they get so self-centered they want to satisfy themselves. That selfish desire to Fulfill what you feel like is what you want is what will lead you astray. It's amusing to me because this seems to be um, kind of the, one of the moral standards of today. People want to tell somebody, I just read something somebody was saying, I'm thinking about moving out of the state of Washington. They're sick of Washington. So somebody said, huh. gave them some advice and so many people are probably hitting the like button, maybe the love button on it. Um, Well, just go where you are appreciated and you feel good about going. It's all about, and it all feels good, but if you actually read God's Word and understand what He wants you to do, going where you feel like you need to go to make you feel better is not necessarily what you need to be doing. Because if everybody did this, we wouldn't have any missionaries We would have fewer and fewer preachers and youth ministers if you just go wherever it feels good to go. How about if you go where God calls you to go? Where He sends you to go? Even if it's uncomfortable. Even if people might make fun of you. Even if you might make less money. Even if your family might resist. Go where God wants you to go, you get God's blessings. You go where you want to go, despite where God wants you to go, and I wouldn't want what you're going to get. Now, there's a word in the English Standard Version, you'll see a note up there that seductive could be translated simpleness. I think the English Standard translators did a good job with the seductive part. Let's look at the last chunk in our text. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 16. This is how she calls out. This is in quotes. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. This is the seductress person. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. 
and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Wow. Now, notice there is um, in here this idea that, hey, this is all going to be really good if we do it in secret. And that's what the sensual desire is. That's, how, that's why there is a pornographic epidemic. Because, hey, you can do this privately and nobody's going to know. Well, God knows. And that's the reminder right here. Because it says, he does not know that the dead are there, that our guests are in the depths of Sheol. Now, I want you to pay careful attention because there has been no uh, more interesting Hebrew word that we've exposed today than what I'm about to show you. The Hebrew is... Raphaim. And you see that that's in the note you'll see in uh, maybe even some of your Bibles. The Hebrew word looks like this. You can see that up there. And it's oftentimes synonymous with the Nephilim. Y'all remember that word? Okay. So you'll find an, a reference. Now, this is talking about giants. That's what it's typically referring to. But it's it's, in a, it's a reference here to those that have, they're dead. They're gone. They're not around anymore. And the, the Nephilim, you know, that was talking about, you know, uh, people that were half angel and half human, and they were giants. And if you do your research, and some of you will, because this is, curiosity is going to really get in you on this, more than likely, because the evidence that we have of former giant people that were on the earth in that region especially is purely circumstantial. We don't really have solid evidence. We haven't discovered the bones or the skulls of these giants. But we've discovered other things, the circumstantial things, the the artwork and the literature that speaks of these giants. And, and it crosses outside the boundaries of Scripture that reference these giants. It is circumstantial. And it's, however circumstantial as it is, it's substantial. But we have a reference in the Old Testament. We have a couple. There's a Joshua one. I'm not going to give that one to you. You can look it up. But there's a Deuteronomy reference, chapter 3, verse 11, where it talks about King Og's bed. And it describes it as being 13 feet long. And I don't have this up behind me, but it was six foot six inches wide. So it's like a giant twin bed. <laughs> that's what it is. Kind of narrow for the length, because that's about the same you know, width and length of a, of a king-size bed. It's pretty close, but except double on the length. So a person that needs a 13-foot bed is probably a pretty big person. But it's fascinating to me in the wisdom of God that the reference here talking about how the destiny of the person who thinks that, hey, I can get away with doing secret stuff because I like doing it. <laughs> that person is, in the, is facing the destiny of these people of old that there's no evidence they ever existed except writings and paintings. So the destiny is not good for people who think they can sneak around and do things and get away with it and nobody's going to know because God knows and he's going to hold you accountable. 
There is chapter 9 in a nutshell. Let's wrap it up with the so what part. There are five things. I've only got three numbers, but there's two, two uh, sub-statements uh, underneath the, the third one. Wisdom instead of absurdity. Know the difference. It behooves us. And that's what the call is. Number one, both are attractive and appealing. Both, notice, <clears throat> it's one of those things that is unique in the nature of man. God's calling on this as he brings out chapter 9. And throughout Proverbs, you see both wisdom and folly are described as women. Because we're drawn to both. Men and women are drawn to the beauty of women. Other women look at other women's beauty and they think, oh, it's beautiful. We don't tend to look at men and think, oh, he's pretty. Well, sometimes we do. But most of the time, I mean, we're drawn to the, the beauty of women. And it behooves us to figure out if we are being lured into something evil or not. Both are attractive and appealing. Second, Choosing wisdom over folly leads to eternal security. Read that in your New Testament as well. Third thing, God has given us his definitive book of wisdom in Scripture. And if you, here's, here's one of those things. So if there's anybody here that's on the fringes, like, I don't know if I like that part about how God gave us his book of wisdom, you know, that this is it. Well, then, okay, where, what other book are you going to turn to? And then are you going to like scribble into your Bible and scribble into mine too? Are you going to black out parts? This is God's word. And even his word tells us we're not to add to it or take away from it. So there's two things under number three. This is his book. This is his book of wisdom. Not just Proverbs and James. Those are, those are books of wisdom within the book of wisdom. But here's two things under this. First of all, know it. This is his word. This is his wisdom. So know it. Christians, if we agree that this is his book of wisdom, that this is the wisdom of God in our Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible, see me before you go and I'll get you one. We all can have a Bible. This is God's wisdom, and most of us have Bibles. And if you actually believe this, then surely you're opening uh, it up on a regular basis, and you're so hungry you're reading it and reading it and reading it and trying to learn from it, right? Right? Because if, if this is the wisdom of God, that means there's no other book that has greater wisdom. This is God's wisdom. So it would behoove us to know it, which means we need to read it. Know what it says. Know what it means. So we're doing this, right? Sure. And then B, more importantly, live it. You see, just knowing it is not enough. Knowing what God's Word says, the wisdom of God, knowing it is one thing, doing it is another. And it is the fool who would simply know it and not do it. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your Word. It seems like every time we open it up, you, you do this thing where you just pull us into it and you, you make us want to do better. God, we want to bring glory and honor to you with our lives. So help us in that, please. Continue to motivate us to read your word and know it. And God, may we please you as we try to live it. In Jesus' name, amen.